Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, the We Scam cover-up continues. The Liberals try to turn the page on their own mismanagement and is the United States heading towards a post-election civil war? The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Welcome to The Andrew Lawton Show. This is Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. It is Monday, October 19th, 2020, just a couple of months to go until the end of the year 2020, the cursed year, if that's your goal, to get through it and get to 2021 and hope things are going to be better on the other side of it. Or if your big uh, comparison to 2020 is going to be the U.S. election, well, we've got you covered there too. We'll be talking about that a little bit later on in the show. We try not to do uh, too much in the realm of U.S. politics exclusively because I know that a lot of Canadian media outlets uh, are so focused on the U.S. that they don't even care about their own country, but we like to have a little bit of a balance. So we're going to be talking about that a little bit later on with a good friend of this show, Dennis Lennox. But in the meantime, I want to talk about the we cover-up, the we scam that is not going away despite the Liberals' best efforts to make it go exactly in that direction, which is to say nowhere. When Justin Trudeau prorogued Parliament earlier in the summer, he had said, eh, it's just a little bit of a reset. Just a reset. We just want to hit the reset button and get back and talk about all the ways we're going to make Canada a better place as we get through the coronavirus pandemic. That was the goal. And he said, no, 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 it has nothing to do with we. Now, we, with not a capital E, all knew that that was not True. We all knew that the Liberals were trying to turn the page on the Wee scandal that at that very time when Parliament was prorogued was actually dogging the Finance Committee. And the Liberals said, no, 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 we're going to give you everything. They handed over thousands of pages of documents, except they were redacted and redacted in a way that was not consistent with what was permitted under that. And we spoke about this with Pierre Polyev. We also spoke about it on the show with Michael Barrett. Now, Michael Barrett is the ethics critic for the Conservatives, and they both said the work is going to continue. They're going to go through the documents, and they actually did something very smart, which was posting them online and allowing everyone else. They basically crowdsourced the uh, investigation and opposition research, and people could go through them. And we learned a lot from this. We learned a lot from those documents. Like, for example, the Prime Minister's office was high highly involved in the development of the program, the 900 and some odd million dollar uh, program that was given to we without going through an open bidding process. They were actually steering it along. A number of emails that show very significant and very clear ties between the Prime Minister's office and we and the Prime Minister's office and the civil service, despite Justin Trudeau's claim that, oh, no, 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 this was all just the bureaucracy. The, the strong, independent public service of Canada was the one that was steering this ship. We just, I just learned about it later on. And, oh, no, I actually said no. I said, you need to give me some better information here. So we learned that was not actually consistent with what happened. So this is going back to earlier in the summer. Now, what's in the unredacted documents? What is in the other documents? We don't yet know. One of the details that the committee has been obfuscating on, that the Conservatives and I'd say opposition parties in general are trying to get insight on, is how much the Liberal family members were paid, how much Trudeau's relatives were paid when they spoke at WE events. We've heard WE's side of things, but there are some questions there given that they at first said they weren't paid anything and then 
they were, and then they were paid a bit, and well, it's all very complicated, you see. And when the, the committee was looking at this last week, a House of Commons committee, uh, they actually were filibustering the Liberals. This is what they were doing. They were trying to just go through endless lengths so as to not deal with the motions. And, and at the end of the day, I mean, they're hoping that Canadians are going to just get tired of this and move on. And I, to some extent, I think people have, but there is also a contingent of people that are paying attention to this still. But I, I want to talk in a little bit more detail about what's happening here, because uh, we've seen now the conservatives especially beat the drum and try to say, listen, I mean, we're not going away. We're going to continue to talk about this. Just for context, here was from earlier today, a joint press conference by Pierre Polyev and Michael Barrett. And here are a couple of the takeaways from this event. As uh, my colleague, Mr. Barrett and I will share with you today, Justin Trudeau carried out a Massive cover-up again last week. His MPs engaged in dozens of hours of filibusters, preventing the ethics and finance committees from getting at the truth. We're in a pandemic, and here is Justin Trudeau blocking the work of our parliamentary committees, preventing the finance committee from addressing the fact that we have the highest deficit in the G20 and the highest unemployment in the G7, our MPs in the Finance Committee should be working on that. But instead, Trudeau is blocking that work, preventing it from happening in the first place so that he can continue a filibuster to cover up we scandal documents. It's time for Justin Trudeau to allow parliamentarians to do the work that we've been sent here to do. Particularly in the context of a pandemic, the standing committees that are dealing with uh, these issues of corruption, need to be able to give that work, hand it off to an anti-corruption committee. And then the, the work, the important work of uh, committees like government operations and official languages, finance and ethics can continue to do their work and address Canadians' concerns as they relate to the pandemic. Yeah, so it's pretty simple right now. And if you look at what's been happening on the committee, the Conservatives want to make an anti-corruption committee of 15 MPs to delve into the WE scandal and other conflicts of interest. And, and they're going to get their debate on this this coming week. But the whole point is the Liberals keep blocking and blocking and blocking, even so much as a vote on this. I mean, the number of issues that they were supposed to go through when the committee met last week or a week and a half ago, but didn't, was astonishing. They didn't get anywhere, and the Liberals were just using parliamentary tricks, which, hey, look, parliamentary theater, uh, parliamentary theater is great, it's part of the process, but the Liberals were using parliamentary tricks to avoid actually having Justin Trudeau's ethical lapses and ethical breaches put under the microscope, despite the Liberal promise that the prorogation was never meant to make all of that go away. All this has done is proved what the cynical types like myself kind of saw coming all the way down the road. But here's where things get tricky, because if the Conservatives continue to keep the pressure up, which they are doing, if they continue to keep the pressure up, they continue to put motion after motion after motion forward, then there's a good chance that we get the answer here. But a lot of it comes down to the NDP. And we know the NDP has already decided, basically, that it's going to prop up the Liberal government. We know that it propped up the throne speech. 
We know there was that one Huffington Post story, uh, the podcast interview with Jagmeet Singh, in which Singh said he may keep the Liberals propped up for another three years. So when push comes to shove, the NDP will uh, surely keep up the pressure in the committee and saying, yeah, we need to have uh, more data and more documents and all of that. But when it matters, if a, a confidence motion comes up, the NDP will still be like, all right, well, despite all of this, I guess, yeah, we have confidence in the Liberals right now. And that's why a lot of this, I think, is important to bring into the realm of the PR debates and the PR discussions, as in litigating this in the open, in media and in the public, because I don't have faith that when push comes to shove, there will be a satisfactory resolution to people that want accountability throughout the parliamentary chambers. Because at a certain point, you're going to have to, if you want to translate this beyond just a, a slap on the wrist, which the ethics commissioner can already put on their own, you're going to have to get a party in the NDP and in all the opposition that is willing to step up and say, no, this is not acceptable. And right now, I don't foresee that happening. Now, Chris Selly had a, a fantastic column on this. He said, nobody should tolerate the Liberals' hideous tricks to hide we documents. And he quoted Andrew McDougall, who was formerly a communications director to Stephen Harper, uh, saying, there probably isn't a smoking gun in these docs, but the Liberals on committee are certainly acting like there's one. And this is so key because even if there's nothing there, by saying no, 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 the liberals are actually making people more and more interested in seeing what might be in these documents. The liberals are now effectively saying, we don't want you to look at these so much that even people that weren't interested are like, oh, you know, now I'm, I'm kind of curious about what's in those documents. Let's hand them over. Whereas if they had done the uh, early release like they were supposed to without the redactions, I mean, unless there is genuinely something there, but if they had done the unredacted document release early on, and said, all right, here you go, have fun. Then they would have called the bluff of the conservatives mainly, but of other opposition members as well, by saying, yeah, we, we've got nothing to hide, here you go. But they've not acted like this. In fact, at every stage of this journey, they've acted the complete opposite, which is to say they have a great deal to hide. And the fact that every single chapter of the We scandal has brought a different explanation from the Liberals or from We, every single stage of this has brought a different excuse and a different rationale. Many of them are incredibly contradictory to one another. That in and of itself is telling us that where there's smoke, there is probably fire. And it was funny, the Liberals were saying, on the committee meeting that, oh, well, you know, we, we just think it's, uh, there's more important things to deal with. We got to go with the pandemic. That, that's what they're using. The pandemic is now the political cover to avoid accountability and oversight for the WE scandal. But it's kind of hilarious if you look at, and, and not in a good way, but hilarious in a very shameful way. If you look at the state of the federal government's pandemic response, for them to say, oh, well, we have no time to deal with WE because we're dealing with the pandemic. I would ask, and I think a lot of other people would ask, well, what do you have to show for that exactly? What do you have to show for that? In fact, the conservatives are saying that the liberals are botching the second wave with case counts nearing 200,000. Uh, Michelle Rempel-Garner, the conservative MP and health critic, had a press conference on the weekend, and she had called out uh, the liberals on this. Here's a clip from that. Today, as businesses are closed in another, in another series of COVID-related economic shutdowns, we are looking for answers as to why the federal government left Canadians unprepared to deal with this second wave. 
Canadians deserve an explanation about why the federal government only has an economic shutdown to rely upon after months and billions of dollars being spent. Canadians have sacrificed their businesses and their children's education and more to give Trudeau time to prepare, and he's failed to do so. So the question she raises is a valid one and actually gets to a topic that I was speaking about, I think it was on the last show or, or two shows ago, which is that if this was seen if this was seen in advance, if everyone knew this was coming, if all the lawmakers who have been talking about the second wave since before the first wave uh, ended, if all of them knew this was coming, why are businesses now facing shutdowns again and the federal government still seems like it was caught off guard and has no idea what's going on? And I'm using their terminology. It was Justin Trudeau that got out there in front of Canadians hours after the speech from the throne and said that we are in the midst of a second wave. Well, you were warning about a second wave. So if, in fact, this is the case, how were you not prepared? Because we know the federal government wasn't really prepared for the first wave of things. Pandemic response was terrible. Yet Justin Trudeau still blamed Stephen Harper. Yeah, I'm sure you heard this last week. Justin Trudeau blamed Stephen Harper, who was there uh, more than five years ago or almost five years ago, for uh, being the reason that uh, the Liberal government was not prepared to deal with the coronavirus pandemic in 2020. And this is now Stephen Harper's fault. And as I remarked on Twitter, you don't get to blame the last guy who was there five years ago when in the interceding five years you've done precisely nothing to correct what they did that you thought was so wrong or so negligent. So the blame Harper thing may have been cute for the first couple of months. Maybe I'll give him a year on it. But five years later, when you're blaming the last guy, it's just plain sad. I'm sorry, but like he is might as well be blaming Wilfrid Laurier at this point for a uh, pandemic response. Not that Laurier fell short in that area. It's just, uh, you know, plucking up. I expect Charles Tupper. We'll, uh, we'll pick on Charles Tupper today. Trudeau might as well be blaming Charles Tupper for uh, pandemic preparedness, but, but that's where we are. But the interesting thing is that the liberals again say that, oh no, they can't focus on uh, we because they're focusing on pandemic, but it doesn't even look like they're doing all that well in that area as well. And that's not all the liberals aren't doing. While they claim that they're focusing on the real important work, they also aren't putting forward a budget. Yeah, this was interesting and good on David Aiken from Global News for keeping track on this. On October 16th, so that would have been Friday, I believe, he said, today is the day a record has been set. No parliament has ever existed longer without a budget being presented to it than the current 43rd parliament. Justin Trudeau eclipsed the record previously held by Jean Chrétien in the 37th Parliament of 2001. Now, this is actually good. Justin Trudeau already made history for the ethical breaches and the conflict of interest violations. Now he's making history as being the prime minister overseeing the longest period in a parliament without a federal budget being tabled. Now, that's bad enough. The big problem is that it doesn't seem like there's ever one in sight, if you look at the finance minister, Christian Freeland's uh, pledges here. So what David Aiken writes in an accompanying column is that uh, she was asked just after the speech from the throne to provide her thinking about the value of a budget and whether she was committed to tabling one before the fiscal year ends. She curtly dismissed the question. She, th she said, the throne speech was clear that in the fall, we will be presenting a fiscal update. Freeland said, apparently oblivious to the fact that one cannot update something, the 2020 to 2021 budget, that does not exist. 
unquote. That's from David Aiken in Global News. And his point is quite valid that, yeah, the fiscal update is actually not particularly relevant because we now don't have a budget technically. And I get that a lot of things are in flux, and I get there are a lot of questions, and quite frankly, this reinforces the uh, question that I've had about why Trudeau decided to do the prorogation and the parliamentary reset in the first place if they did not feel they had the ability to put together an accurate and comprehensive budget. It's one thing to roll out the list of pledges and promises in campaign style like they did during the throne speech. It's quite another to say, all right, here are the numbers, here are what we are going to deal with. Because the Liberals don't want to admit just how big the deficit's going to be. They don't want to admit, in many regards, they probably don't know. But when truth, uh, when, when you look at this truthfully, the Liberals do not want to admit just how bad things are. And if you look at some of the numbers, the uh, Canada pandemic spending is actually outpacing even other similar countries. And this was a, a really, really interesting story that I came across. Canada's budget deficit has grown by more than any other G20 country amid pandemic. Now, this is according to an analysis at National Bank Financial, well ahead of UK, which is in the second place, on track for a deficit equal to 14.6% of its economy. But in Canada's case, one-fifth of the country's economic output is likely to be the deficit this year, 19.6%. So let's just say comfortably 20% of our country's economic output is going to be the deficit. And there is no end in sight. And again, we go back to that whole second wave idea. If this is coming, well, the spending continues to ramp up. Well, new promises, new pledges, new programs are being rolled out then we are in we are going to be very quickly in if we're not already a situation in which nothing is sustainable and this is historic levels of spending there's no doubt about that and i actually feel quite bad for whomever is in office next whether it's Aaron O'Toole or someone else because there is no way they are going to be able to achieve any fiscal vision that they would at all want to run on with what they're going to inherit. And again, I, I give Trudeau credit, not credit, I, I defend him to some extent because it was going to be messy no matter what. Even the most fiscally responsible governments in the world have had to spend outside of their means for this. But it's about how measured you are in your response to it. And, and rather than actually saying, all right, here are the non-negotiables, and here are the things that we can kind of figure out a way through. Trudeau just whipped out the checkbook for anything and everything. And even when programs weren't working, he was starting new programs, signing new checks, writing new uh, checks, and doing this right up until even just a, a few weeks ago. And, and I mean, CERB was constantly evolving, and some of the business relief programs were as well. But missing the point is exactly what these things were doing, because businesses simply wanted to be able to open and operate and function. And I know that a lot of the lockdowns came provincially, but it was the federal government, federal advice that was driving much of this dialogue throughout the earlier days and earlier months of the pandemic. So for the Liberals now to be in this situation where billions and billions of dollars, a deficit that might be nearing $400 billion, and the number is not at all set in stone, I think it's pretty darn important for there to be a budget so we know exactly what we're dealing with. But in order for that, the Liberals would have to know as well. We've got to take a break. When we come back, more of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. Stay tuned. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. 
Welcome back to the Andrew Lawton Show. This was a bit of an interesting sidebar to the weekend's United Conservative Party, AGM, if you were tuning into that. The media got crazy over Aaron O'Toole and Jason Kenney sitting down beside each other to participate in a live stream. Now, this uh, is a virtual AGM. It's all virtual. So the only people that are actually at the convention location are the staff that are making it run and some of the politicians who are speaking. And for 10 minutes... Jason Kenney, the Premier of Alberta, and Aaron O'Toole, the leader of the Conservatives, sat down and were chit-chatting about uh, all sorts of things. And Jason Kenney wished Aaron O'Toole well and his recovery from COVID-19. And and then this is the story that was put out by the Canadian press. O'Toole and Kenney sit side-by-side for live stream without wearing masks. And they get an Alberta health spokesperson who says, yes, the province still advises everyone to wear masks when physical distancing isn't possible. But here's the, the thing. They, they tried to like push this out, missing kind of one key point. Aaron O'Toole's already got COVID-19. He, he's, he's at no risk of receiving it or transmitting it based on the best available evidence. But then the health officials go back to, well, we, we don't really know about reinfection. And I remember early on uh, when there were stories about reinfection, and there was one in particular, I think it was in South Korea or something, where they had said, well, you know, 20 people uh, were reinfected with COVID-19 after they'd had it previously. And I got actually quite startled by that. I'm like, oh, that's not good. And then I, I read a follow-up story a few weeks later. It was like, you know, scratch that. They just still had it the first time. They didn't get reinfected. They just, it never went away from them. So so even if we don't have the definitive proof that, okay, you cannot be reinfected, we also don't have any significant reason to believe you can be reinfected. And if you compound that with the fact that we're talking about, again, two people that are on camera here, uh, there's still generally distance in other ways and everyone's wearing their masks off camera. It, it's now this uh, reinforcement of the snitch culture dilemma where people are going to just want to snitch on and rat out anyone that they feel is breaking the rules. And I kind of had hoped we had moved beyond this because earlier on, this was the issue of, oh, if you see your neighbor having people over in the backyard or, oh, you see someone at the uh, st- the town's baseball diamond, you have to rat them out to bylaw enforcement. I kind of thought we all realized that wasn't where we wanted to live, but apparently not if you're Aaron O'Toole and Jason Kenney and you dare sit down and, and talk to each other on camera, uh, you're going to get the uh, the media on your back about, uh, oh, well, you're not uh, wearing masks and you're not socially distancing. And uh, it is interesting because, I, I mean, you can see in the picture here, uh, it's it's difficult to tell exactly how far they are. Like, I mean, they're, they're probably not six feet, but, you know, I'd say maybe their faces are four to five feet away from each other. I, I've met Jason Kenney and Aaron O'Toole a number of times. Uh, neither one has ever uh, done what Justin Trudeau would call uh, spoken moistly on me. Neither has ever done that. So I, when push comes to shove, I am not going to get outraged about this. But it is this theater this theater of it. Everyone has to be in a very performative manner, proving like they are the most adherent to the COVID-19 rules. And if you aren't the most adherent to the COVID-19 rules, well, 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 do we have the uh, the mob remedy for you? Just uh, circulate the picture on Twitter. Uh, and it's funny, I mean, a lot of on, uh, for example, I watch Big Brother every now and then when there's nothing else on in the summer. And this season, I was just curious to see how they would uh, navigate the COVID-19 issue. 
And they had like all of the people who were contestants in isolation and tested numerous times before the show began. And once they leave the house after they're eliminated, they have to put their mask on to do their, you know, exit interview. And I'm like, they've been in a house in a literal bubble for, I don't know how long the show has been on now, weeks or a couple of months. They are not at risk of anything, but they have to be seen wearing the mask that's the issue is that it's it's not about even people buying into this they just have to be seen to be buying into it and that's where uh, society is putting its efforts forward now we have to take one quick break again we will be back talking about u.s politics momentarily here on the andrew lawton show stay tuned you're tuned in to the andrew lawton show Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. As I said at the top, it is a Canadian domiciled show, but we try to get a sense of what's happening in the world everywhere. And, and certainly with the American election coming up in just a couple of weeks, we'd be remiss to not point it out. But it's not coming from the place of obsession like a lot of Canadian media approaches it, nor is it coming from the place of uh, not actually understanding American politics. I, I've spent a lot of time focusing on U.S. politics and in the U.S., uh, observing elections and what. Whatnot. And I think it's very important that we, we talk about this in a more measured way than a lot of other uh, Canadians do. Uh, with that being said, I, I want to talk about some of the big themes in this. We've got the debate coming up on Thursday, as I said, the election coming up in just a couple of weeks. And, and we've also got some dynamics in the media that I think are going to play out regardless of what happens. But I, I want to talk about some of those eventualities. I'm very pleased to be joined on the phone by my friend and a colleague, Dennis Lennox, a conservative and Republican commentator and strategist. Dennis, good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. Hey, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Now, one of the things that I, I think is important to start off on here, you being from Michigan, this was one of the, the great stories of the 2016 election where you had the Democrats not pay any attention to Michigan, Wisconsin, the Midwest more generally, and these people really being, I think, the, the cornerstone of Donald Trump's victory. Where do you see the Midwest playing a role in 2020? Well, you know, in 2016, by this point, I had actually predicted that Trump would win because of what I was seeing on the ground in Michigan. Um, this time around, though, Andrew, um, I just can't make a prediction. Um, I want to believe that Trump's enthusiastic support gives him an immeasurable advantage. I mean, let's be honest, nobody really supports Joe Biden. And uh, of course, I know many of the listeners aren't aware of sort of the, the intermachinations and dynamics, but basically Biden has no support. You know, you contrast that by... Trumpsters, Trumpians, Trumpists, whatever we call them, uh, many of those people would jump off the peace bridge for Trump. Uh, I've never seen anything like it. Those people never came out for Romney. They never came out for McCain, um, never seen them in the past. Um, I've said for four years this election in places like Michigan will be about turnout. If more Republican voters show up, Trump's going to win. Um, it's not that I don't believe the polls. I just don't trust them. I, you know, I, was, I saw some um, – internal private polling that I'm privy to over the weekend that and I'm no pollster but I've been around the game for a while that you know the sample that they had put together for us 70% of the respondents were cell phone respondents great you know if you're in York Center if you're in Detroit that works great you're in these rural areas uh, states like Michigan and Wisconsin that are going to largely be de decided by rural voters I'm not quite sure if a 70% cell phone sample is actually reflective 
of the voter demographics, let alone a 75-year-old retiree in Florida or 70-year-old auto worker in Ohio. I just don't see them using YouGov's online polling panel. Um, it's entirely possible that Trump wins, but the math is so stacked against Republicans because of the electoral college system and the changing demographics of this country. Uh, he's got to run the table. He has to win Florida. He has to win Ohio. He has to win Arizona, which is becoming very difficult. He has to carry North Carolina, and he either needs to win Pennsylvania or he needs to win a combination of Michigan and Wisconsin. Otherwise, it's just mathematically impossible um, for the Republicans to win because of the changing demographics of the United States. Yeah, and that's a, a really important point. And I, I don't want to get too in the weeds on, on numbers, but it used to be, you know, four, five, six elections ago that there were a, a few states that if you won those, you had a, a fighting shot. Now there is a, a series of states for a Republican, not for a Democrat, a series of states for a Republican wherein everything needs to go right for you to win. Not just four or five elections ago. Uh, look, Trump last week was in Georgia, two and a half weeks before the election. Trump was in Georgia. That would have been unthinkable an election ago. I mean, that's the that is the American Trump going to Georgia two and a half weeks before the election, four or eight years ago, would have been considered the American equivalent of the Tory leader going to Battle River Crowfoot two weeks before the election. <laughs> the, the reality is Arizona once solidly red, North Carolina once solidly red. Georgia, once solidly red. They're all either blue now or trending that way. Virginia is a lost cause. Texas is trending battleground status. There's not a single blue state, you know, blue in the American context being leftist, um, that is trending Republican. So the Democrats have a demographic advantage to their favor in that most of these red states um, that are desirable places to live – are trending Democrat, and that hurts Republicans. Now, Trump did something in 2016 that no other Republican could do. Let's not forget this. The Republican Party was uh, dead. It was on life support before Trump. Uh, this is a party that you know, once in six attempts won a national majority over 24 years. Trump did something that no other Republican could have done. If the nominee in 2016 had been Chris Christie or Little Marco or Lying Ted or – you know. Scott Walker, the idea that any of them could have beaten Hillary Clinton is absurd. Yeah, and that this was, I, I think, the big story and, and where there is an importance in anyone who's outside of the U.S. looking in to understand, which is the dynamics that really drove the Trump victory. And, and a lot of those people, I guess, here's the question, the people that had lost their factory job to uh, outsourcing to China, people that had been forgotten by Democrats and Republicans for the last half a century in uh, rural America, the people that were called bitter clingers by Obama, the flyover country. I mean, we've heard all the euphemisms, the deplorables. Are those people still Trump supporters four years later, or do we even know? Sure, but there's just not enough proverbial bald, fat, old white men with plumber's crack to win the election. I mean, you know, that there's, there's just not enough of them. Um, I said it in 2008. In fact, actually, I think in one of your previous iterations, we've had this discussion before. Um, you know, I said it in 2008 um, after the Obama tidal wave that and the Republican Party had to start looking and talking like the America of the second decade of the 21st century. We're now in the third decade of the 21st century. 
the reality is you just can't win with bald, fat, old white men. Now, that Trump, you know, Trump's goal is to gin up the turnout as much as he can, pick off enough of the African-American black vote and pick and, and, and do a respectable number with Hispanics in states like Nevada, Florida and Arizona, um, that it will you know, cancel out the losses that the Republicans are facing in once uh, solidly red states and in suburbs which were trending Democrat before Trump. I mean, Trump is, you know, the conclusion of a realignment. He gets blamed for Republican problems in the suburbs, um, in places like Detroit and in Pennsylvania, etc. The reality is any honest political observer will admit that those areas were trending Democrat long before Trump. We're in the we're at the end of an American political realignment where, you know, the Democratic Party, despite its rhetoric, is basically a gentry liberal party, you know, the equivalent of York Center or whatever. Um, in Canada, and the Republican Party now is a uh, is a rural party with working class voters um, and small business owners. So let me ask you then about these cultural dynamics, because this is not going to go away. I mean, I know everyone says that uh, politics gets more and more polarized, but we're at the point where people are, are talking, whether it's an exaggeration or not, about being on the brink of a, a civil war of sorts. And I, and I don't want to get too uh, into this idea of, of you know, conspiratorial uh, theorization, but, but I do think it's going to be messy whatever happens, and, and especially if Trump wins re-election. I mean, we've already seen in the last uh, couple of months, riots and looting. I, I suspect there will be some well, version well, of that. Be honest, what though, happens? Right? I mean, you, you, you know, before we get to the answer of what happens to Trump, let's be honest, who created the mess? I mean, the, the, the reason why we have this strife uh, in our country anyways at the moment and these divisions that we're seeing is because of the culture wars that the left has you know, engineered over the past 25 yeah. years. No, no, no argument for me on that. And, and the reality is Americans no longer share the same values. Americans no longer conservative and liberal Americans, or as I like to say, conservatives and progressives, no longer go to the same churches. They no longer shop at the same stores. The the, the integration of American fabric uh, has dis- disintegrated, you know, that sort of post-World War II fabric that bound the country together. We no longer share in the same ideals and same values because the political left is trying to fundamentally change uh, the, values of, the values proposition of the United States. And I don't think that's a conspiracy theory. But what happens if Trump, after Trump, Look, whether Trump wins or loses, and I I still believe there's a path for him to win, but as I said a few minutes ago, it's mathematically difficult because he basically has to run the table. He he can't afford to lose anywhere, whereas Joe Biden can afford to lose a lot of states. But there's going to be a civil war, you know, no pun intended, uh, within the Republican Party, literally, not figuratively. Um, after Trump, regardless of whether he wins or loses, the real question is. What is the Republican Party? I don't see how the Republican Party can return to what it was before Trump. I think that party is dead. Uh, I don't see never-Trumpers, the deranged never-Trumpers, particularly the ringleaders uh, coming back. Um, I, I don't know how they weasel their way back after what they've done. Um, I, I Again, I think we're at the conclusion of a political realignment. The real question is – how do you keep the Trump voters, enough of them, while still bringing in people that you need? That is to say Asians, Indians, 
Hispanics to the column. Uh, Trump is doing some interesting things despite the media's reportage, and they're never going to give him credit, uh, with Hispanic voters in states like Florida and Nevada and Arizona, where his numbers are actually pretty respectable. Of course, Trump did better with black voters in 2016 than most Republican nominees, better than Mitt Romney, for example. Never hear of that. And with women as well, sure, another I, demographic yeah. that people wouldn't have expected him to get. Now, the black vote is a challenge, personally. Um, you know, there's probably no politically correct way to say this. Uh, I've always thought Republicans spending money on the black vote was a wasted effort. I would much rather spend that money on Asians and Hispanics and Indians. Indians as in India. Um, of course, you know, in the United States context, I'm like there in Canada. When we say Indians, we mean we mean Native Americans. Um, I think that's where we have to expand. And, you know, the Conservative Party in Canada, you know, uh, Jason Kenney and those sorts of people did some interesting things a few years ago with expanding to those communities, and we can do a better job in the Republican Party with that, um, regardless of whether Trump wins or loses. But yeah, Andrew, 2024, um, I mean, the race has already started for 2024. Nikki Haley is out there. She's totally running. Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, he's totally running. Um, uh, you know Mike Pence thinks he's the heir apparent as well. Well, I don't think he runs if Trump loses. If tr if Trump wins, Pence totally runs. No, he, he goes down with that ship. And But that actually brings up uh, another important question of, in that sort of never Trump Trump divide, there are very few neutrals. I, I mean, there are people that are, have you know become on one hand Trump loyalists and on the other hand were never Trumpers. And you've got a couple of people that were very critical that have kind of out more aligned with Trump, like your Marco Rubio well, Ted Cruz types. But yeah, well, Nikki Haley's a, a great example there. But in a lot of cases, I mean, if if there is a what's perceived as a Trump implosion, it will be very difficult for people who were aligned with Trump to rebound. But I, I don't think that the never Trump fantasy is going to happen. Whereas, you know, the house of cards comes crashing down and everyone looks to Bill Crystal and David Frum as, you know, being the spiritual leaders can, can, who will write, who will write way, all along. Can we deport David Frum back to Canada, please? Can you guys just take okay, him? We don't want him. You're stuck with him, Dennis. Him, you know, him and, him and Rosie Barton can just hang out all day long because we're sick of her and we're sick of him. <laughs> you know, she, she thinks she's on like Fox or CNN by her tweets, you know, about American politics. But no, I mean, you're totally right. I, I, there is no constituency. There's no demographic for never Trumpism. And there wasn't before, right? Before Trump, there wasn't. There's, well, no, the demographic is, the, is uh, liberal cable news. Yeah, the, the, the reality is that the never Trump brand of Republicanism lost five out of six elections in which it was the dominant ideology of the Republican Party. The real question is going to be how does somebody, you know, keep Trump voters in the Republican column. I, I do think the question is going to be, particularly if Trump loses, were you with Trump or did you actively work against him? That is something that Republican primary voters and caucus goers in 2024 will remember, particularly since Joe Biden's only going to be a one-term president. So 2024 is going to either be an open seat or, you know, if you're a conspiracy theorist, Kamala Harris is going to be the sitting president at the time. Um, and I, look, I would keep an eye on somebody like Christy Nome. Nobody knows who she is yet, the governor of South Dakota. You know, she's running 
two ads an hour on Fox News using South Dakota tourism money promoting herself. She's campaigning in states like New Hampshire right now for Trump. Of course, New Hampshire, you know, traditionally holds the the, the, the first contest in the presidential nominating campaigns. Um, Tom Cotton, the senator from Arkansas, is interesting. Josh Hawley, senator from Missouri, is interesting. Um, you know, there are probably a half dozen dozen potential, you know. A-listers out there and high B-listers. Again, though, the problem is it's not so much who the generic Republican nominee after Trump is. It's whether or not the Republican Party can compete demographically when you have states like Texas and Georgia and Arizona either blue or trending competitive. And that's that's the real challenge, right? You can't win. You can the the you know it's already a challenge enough this year when states like Arizona and Georgia and North Carolina, um, you know, are competitive. If the Republican can't count on Texas, then the Republican Party might as well file bankruptcy and go out of business because there's no way whatsoever it can win. Yeah, and we've actually talked about that uh, very dynamic on the show in the past with uh, former RNC chairman Michael Steele about whether uh, the the system itself is, is holding uh, Republicans back rather than helping Republicans, which is what a lot of them still uh, cling to in, in spite of the math you've just mentioned. So uh, we'll have to have a, another discussion about that. Dennis Lennox, political commentator and strategist, a conservative, uh, joins me. It's great to talk to you, Dennis. Thanks very much for coming on. Hey, and thanks for everything you do, Andrew, pushing back at that horrible Canadian media complex that you guys have up there. Well, I appreciate that. And thanks for being an American that knows what York Center is. <coughs> Take care. And that does it for me. We will talk to you next time. This is Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. Thank you, God bless, and good day, Canada. If you enjoy the show and want to hear more of it, we need your support. Head on over to andrewlawtonshow.com and click donate to support the work that we're doing and stand up for independent media. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.